Leonard Cohen suggested, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. All right, though we, though we, though we had a few uh, flies in our ointment before we finally figured out that you were, you were on one medium and I was on another medium. We worked it out and here we are um, 18 inches and hundreds of miles apart. You're in Ohio, right? I am not in Ohio. I am in Naples, Florida, but I have, I am loyal to the, my Ohio phone number. So I still have the same phone number I had 25 years ago. Phone number loyalty. I, <laughs> I am looking at uh, I am looking at Melissa Hughes sitting in front of her bookshelf now um, bookcase. Now is that a real bookcase or is that a projection? That is a real bookcase. Actually, you can tell it's a real bookcase because look how look how messy it all is. Wow! And you've got one of those cool ladders on rollers. I do. So there's a story behind my library ladder. Do you want to hear it? Absolutely. <laughs> So when we uh, built this house, like we came from a house that was like 40 minutes away and we were building this house and uh, Christopher wanted a nice machine. And I said, oh, you know, we were going through the list of nice to haves and must haves. And he wanted an ice machine in the outdoor kitchen. And I said, you know, how many times like do you going to use that ice machine out there? Like when we entertain, maybe like let's do the cost per cube. And he was, um, he had to have his ice machine. And I said, that's fine. You can have that on your must have list. And I must have a library ladder in my inspiration space. So I got my library ladder. Needless to say, he got his ice machine. <laughs> Cost per cube. I've never heard that calculation. Cost per cube. Yeah. You well, know. you know, when you're building a house and, and it's through the builder and, you know, every, every little thing is like, um, you know, things add up. And so you, you kind of whittle it down to this list of things that are just nice to have. Well, he wanted that on his must have list and, I must have a library ladder then. Well, I've, I have one deeply meaningful and existential question to ask you before I ask you to launch into your story. Now, have you gotten on to the library ladder and pushed it to see if you could roll like a skate? Uh, I have I have gotten on the library ladder and I have taken it all the way across to the other side. Yes. 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 I feel connected now. Because that's always been a dream. It's like I always wanted to be the guy who drove the back of the hook and ladder truck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, if you, let me just turn my phone off. Excuse me. Tell us your story. How'd you get here? Well, I started my career in a fourth grade classroom. Uh, and I remember the very first year that I taught. Uh, don't do the math on this, but it was the first year for the Ohio proficiency test. I was in Ohio then, and we uh, stressed these kids out over this standardized test like you would not believe. We spent, you know, three months on test prep, and we sent flyers home and told mom and dad to make them eggs for breakfast and get a good night's sleep and. You know, when it was finally time for the test, we said, now go in there and do your very best. 
And what I know now is that that simply is impossible. The brain cannot function at its optimum capacity if it's all stressed out. Then I didn't know that. But at the end of that year, you know, I sat down with my mentor to do a postmortem on what worked, what didn't work, uh, what do you want to get better at for next year? And it dawned on me that I can't possibly be the best teacher that I, that I can be unless I understand how the brain works and how the brain learns and all of those factors that impact cognition and creativity and imagination and, you know, all the things that we want our kids to be able to do. And so that is really where my fascination with neuroscience started. That's where my journey started. Um, and I did a lot of things along the way, but I, I, I came to this kind of fork in the road where I decided, um, you know, all things being equal, that whole understanding of how the brain works, that is not, the benefits of that are not confined to the classroom. And I started to have more conversations and, and, and this is after years of research as well, but what I learned was there were a lot of organizational leaders who recognized that, hey, if my people can learn and teach and collaborate and communicate in the most effective, productive ways, then that gives me a competitive edge over my competitors. So that's kind of the nickel tour of how I got here. And I have found in those years of just having conversations, like I am truly a neuroscience geek. I own it. I unabashedly own that. I am proud of that. But the other thing I know is that most people don't enjoy reading the research studies the way I do. They don't get all excited about multiple regression studies and, you know, all of that. But most people are pretty darn interested in the so what, what does that mean for me part? And so, you know, probably one of my most favorite things in the world is to be able to say, hey, did you hear about this study? And this is what it means. And you can do that. And it's going to impact that. And people go, really? What? I can't wait. You know, so that that's my that's my um, guilty pleasure. And that's what I love to do. So that's how I got here. Well, we aren't we aren't far apart on that love. Um, you have taken a more disciplined approach than I have. I have seldom been accused of being disciplined. Um, about sailing I am and about music I am, but everything else I pretty much take it as it comes. But I am flabbergasted and fascinated by our humanity, much of which comes out in our thinking. I, I forget who said, it's one of my favorites, um, the mind is a great servant and a terrible master. That's a great quote. Yeah, and I think I've heard that before, but I don't know who said that, but it's true. It's very true. And I I find myself um, amused by my own thinking um, countless times a day, countless times a day. I used to take it way too seriously, but the more seriously I took it, the more dysfunctional it became, you know, kind of like your kids with their tests, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that testing um, induces huge amounts of anxiety. And as you said, in, in that anxiety place, our performance 
drops off. And um, right? Yeah. So, and in the workplace, you know that that construct is psychological safety. So, whether it's in the classroom or in the boardroom or in the conference room, wherever you find yourself, if you if you are not operating with a fair amount of psychological safety, then your brain is more focused on survival than it is on thinking. And one of my, one thing that I, that I always share when I go out and speak is the neural, we like to think that we're rational, logical thinkers all the time, right? Um, But the neural priorities follow neural development. So the brain develops from bottom to top and back to front. And so you know, you probably heard that the prefrontal cortex or the part right behind your forehead is the part of the brain that handles all the heavy lifting. It does all the executive functions. It's also the last part of the brain to develop and it doesn't finish, you know, it's not fully cooked until about our mid twenties, but the brain develops from bottom to top and back to front. So the bottom of the brain, the survival brain is the first to develop then the center of the brain is the limbic system or where our emotional, our emotional sentinel. And then the third part of the brain to develop is that heavy duty thinking. Well, our neural priorities follow that same path. First, the brain is there to keep us alive. (laughs) Survival is number one. I mean, that's how we have survived extinction for, you know, thousands of years. Second is to feel because that's what separates us from potato bugs is we have emotional feelings. And then third is thinking. So when you, you know, think about how that impacts everything we do, if you don't feel safe emotionally, the brain does not do a very good job of differentiating between being chased by a saber toothed tiger and being having your social status threatened in the conference room. In the brain, those two things look exactly the same. You know, and when you realize that, then it makes that threat to your social status in the conference room kind of a big deal, right? So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's um, fascinating. And I think what happens is when people have a greater understanding of all of those hidden forces that influence our decisions, and get this, they influence our decisions and we don't even know it. Like we're not even paying attention to it. Like if you think 95% of the things that we think about, we're not even thinking about them. It happens in our subconscious. The brain just takes over and, and takes care of them. But for that to happen, there are a whole lot of shortcuts that go on upstairs. And we call them cognitive biases or heuristics. And those are the things that completely skew our thinking. And like, we just go on with our day and we have no idea why that perspective was, or we jumped to that inaccurate conclusion, or we made an unfair assumption about someone, but it happens all the time, all day long. And it's cool because when you start to dig into those things, then you, you'll start to see them everywhere. Cause like, I'll go, Oh, Fundamental attribution error, right there. Happened. (laughs) (laughs) Projection. Oh, there it is. There it is. Confirmation bias. Yep, there it is. So, yeah. And, And, Mac, we live in a time now where 
hard conversations are everywhere, right? Everywhere. And so I just wrote a, a piece for Biz Catalyst, um, you know, and it's about why facts don't matter when we have these really hard conversations. And and it boils down to cognitive biases. Like we, and we all think that we're not biased. Like that's our bias blind spot, by the way, but we are all biased. And, and so there are different confirmation biases. One egocentric bias is another, you know, we have these biases that the backfire effect, for example, if I share, if you tell me that you're in favor of fill in the blank, hot button topic, doesn't matter what it is. You tell me you're in favor of it, and I say I'm opposed, and here's why I'm opposed, and I'm going to give you all these facts, and here's this research, and here are links, and you can verify, and you can check, and it's not based on emotion. It's not an opinion. These are all facts. The more facts I give you, the more you will dig in your heels and say, oh, hell no, because if it's a hot-button topic like gun reform or women's reproductive rights or whatever the issue is, and, and I try to provide you with facts, the backfire effect says I'm attacking the, the essence of your identity yeah. because that, that's a really, you have strong convictions over whatever that topic is, and that is now part of your identity. So now I'm not attacking the topic or even your position on the topic. The brain takes it like I'm attacking you and your very identity. And so the more facts I give you, the more you're going to be like, nope, don't want to hear it. And you'll be even more entrenched in, in your position. So you think about how many of those conversations do we see online all the time? All the time. Watch them play out, right? It's crazy. Have you seen a, a, a TED Talk? Um, it's The title is um, Why We Think We're Right Even When We're Wrong. Yes, I have seen Julia. Um, I can't remember, Julia, Julia Galef about the soldier mindset and the scout mindset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you said your entrenched physician, boy, that I went right to this, you know, the soldier in the trench. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned the saber tooth tiger. One of the, one of the things I do with myself about this crap is to, is to ask myself, because I can feel it. I mean, I can feel it physically. Um, I had two things happen to me in my lifetime. One, I had a heat stroke, which changed me physiologically. But I also was right next door to 9-11. So I had PTSD. And at first, I had no idea what it was. But I kept pulling all the blinds in my house and, and you know, hiding. I couldn't go up my, you know, I figured that. So I got, due to those things... I get very sensitive to the HPA circuit. It only takes a little trickle of cortisol for me to go blah, 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 blah. So mm-hmm. the, the question I ask myself is, where's the tiger? Mm-hmm. Where's the tiger? And I think a lot of us don't take the time to say, where's the tiger? Why is being challenged by my wife something that I have to come out swinging about? Mm-hmm. Why is, right, you said, I'm in favor of abortion, I'm against abortion, whatever that is. Why do I have to defend myself? And if I defend myself, isn't part of what that tells me is that my belief can't bear scrutiny. 
Yeah, I mean, there are two things there. So for you to have this deeply held belief and for someone to challenge it, um, you know, the first thing is if, if for you to consider that there may be another possible perspective that has merit would be to admit that this deeply held belief that you have is flawed. That's really hard, right? But that's at the essence of intellectual humility. Um, and I talk about intellectual humility as if I have it, and I don't, because um, most of us don't. It's something I work on all of the time, but intellectual humility is being able to say, Mac, tell me why I'm wrong and really want to know why I'm wrong. And that takes intention and that takes tons of practice and it takes a lot of trust. And if you think about um, having intellectual humility, let's, let's take it out of the mainstream where things are like people are want to kill each other. Uh, think about it in terms of the workplace. Um, I have this, I'm working on this great project. Here's my proposal. Mac, look at this proposal. And I've been working on it for three weeks and I am so psyched. I can't wait to get started on this. How easy is it for me to go, Mac, poke holes in this thing. Tell me why this won't work. I mean, that's hard because again, this isn't a hot button issue, but by now I have ownership over this project. I can already envision it. I can see it in action, right? And so, but if I'm able to say, Mac, I trust you, poke holes in this proposal. Tell me what's wrong with this proposal before we get started so that we can identify those potential pitfalls, right? We can identify those orange cones because I'm so close to it, I cannot see those orange cones. Before me to do that, I have to be able to trust you. And so when you talk about, we go back to psychological safety, the essence of psychological safety is trust, right? I wish... And actually, this will be saved as an as an as an MP4. I wish you could see the facial changes that you just went through, like over here, da -da, da -da, da -da. because when you when you came on with here's this great project, Mac, all that stuff, and then when you shifted to the humility face, which is tell me why this won't work. The second face was a more loving face. It was less excited, but it was more loving. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the shape of your eyes and these little wrinklies over here and your smile. And what if down deep inside all of us, and, and let, let's take like psychopaths and sociopaths and, and stuff. Let's set, set all them aside. Right. So most of us, there, there is this magnet towards the truth. And then if that is possible, and if that may be the case, because I believe that that's the case, then from an educational perspective and a, and a, and a humanity perspective, I think the question I need to remind myself of, and I do this in my work, is what's standing in the way of this other human being going, oh, 
oh, that's different. Let's talk about our difference instead of you're a moron and the horse you came in on and you liberals, conservatives, whatever, you white people, right. men, you whatever, you don't know nothing. You know, what you said about how the brain develops, eh, eh, and eh, eh, that um, um, shift in geography in our brains, I think we we can start to be more aware of and can go, oh, um, down, I call it Maslow's basement. I'm down in Maslow's basement again. Yeah. Um, and we all like to think that we're at the apex. We all like to think that we're at self-actualization, <laughs> right? I mean, for most of us, self-esteem is going to be, uh, maybe once in a while we'll bounce in and out of self-actualization. But for the most part, um, that's a that's a tough one. It's like experts say 15% of the population actually get there. But, you know, when you think about, you, you, you just like kind of nailed it. Like, what is it that's preventing me from saying, uh, tell me, tell me what I'm missing. And 95, I would say 98% of the time it's trust. You know, I can go to someone I really trust and say, I just had this conversation with so-and-so about such and such. And she said, what do you think about that? And if that, and if I really trust that person and that person says, well, you know, she's got a point. I mean, maybe you should take a step back. You know, I will. I think the, I think the ultimate goal is for me to check myself, like ask yourself, when was the last time you asked someone, tell me why I'm wrong and really want to know. Like, really, you're open to, because here's the thing, if we can get there, and I, and I practice this, and it sucks, <laughs> it's hard, I get it. But if you get there, and you, and somebody said, and I'm not saying you, we just, we just throw away all of our convictions, and that we have, you know, like, that our belief systems are Swiss cheese. I'm not saying that at all. But if I can come to you about something that I really feel strongly about and say, Mac, tell me why I'm wrong. And you tell me why I'm wrong. And I take time and I process that. Maybe I research what you tell me. Maybe I really investigate those things. And then at the end of the day, I come back and say, you know what, Mac, you were, you were right. I was wrong. But think about that. That is how the human brain has evolved. <laughs> You know, that's how we get smarter. That's how science works. Like yeah. we science doesn't work because of the things because of all of the things that we discover. Science works because all of the things that we discover, they don't work. Right. I, I mean, we disprove we, we discover things by disproving our theories a lot of times. So if I'm able to do that, I am so much I should feel so great about myself that I've, that I can step back and say, Oh my gosh, I'm smarter now. Like, and now use that new information to challenge my own beliefs. Right. We don't do that. It's, it's not an innate skill. It's hard and it takes a lot of practice and it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. There it is. Right. I mean, several things and, and this is great we we have these 
kind of bubbles rising to the surface and then going bing. <laughs> um, if my beliefs, whatever they are, are worthy, then I think that they should also be worthy of examination. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, if I'm, if I'm really sure God exists, however, whatever God is for me, then to think about that and to examine that and to question that is does not mean that my belief is not strong. In fact, that means that my belief is strong, is that I can question it. And I can go, on the other hand, what if? And when when you were saying, um, tell me why this is wrong, I think you said, mm -hmm. as soon as you said that, I felt viscerally two things simultaneously, which is one of my favorite things about being a human being, is that we can we can have different feelings at the same time. And when I was still drinking and drugging years ago, I didn't understand that. I thought every feeling had to be separate, unique, strong, identifiable, could put it in a bin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I felt at the same time threatened and happy when, when, you, when you said that about question. And you know that I love Louise Penny, the writer. I think she's astonishing. And in one of her books, she says, these are the four sentences that will bring you to wisdom. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't know. And I need help. Yeah. And in the leadership work I do, I bring up this thing about how many times do you say to your employees, I don't know. They're like, huh? <laughs> it's like, what is that about? What yeah. is that about? Yeah, you know, the we've all been in that room with the guy who's the smartest guy in the room. And I mean, all that does is completely suck the oxygen out of every other idea in that room. I mean, nothing makes it to the surface then because you're like, why bother? I mean, he's this obviously he's the smartest guy in the room or she's the smartest gal in the room. Um, so, you know, for a leader to say, I need help. I mean, that does, that is so powerful for a leader to say, I need help to be vulnerable enough to say, I don't have all the answers and I need help. And the reason I'm asking you is because look around, we spend a lot of time hiring the best and the brightest. Why wouldn't you tap into the best and the brightest? You know, and, it, and I'll go back to that original example of I've got this great idea and here's this great proposal and I'm so psyched. I mean, that's the employee that you want. You want that engaged, excited, passionate person there, right? But you also need to temper that with, tell me why I'm wrong. And that only happens because if there is no trust and I'm really excited and I come to you and you just, you know, shoot it up and shoot it down and it's gone. And now I'm completely deflated. I just spent three weeks working on this thing that I was super jazzed about. Now I'm completely deflated. So not only maybe you saved time, money, and energy on that project, but the long-term effects of my engagement, my productivity, my collaboration with everybody else in that company, that lives on like I, I'm I'm this it doesn't it's not like the next project I'm going to bounce right back and be equally as excited no we're we take those 
emotions with us to the next thing. It's, you know, it's, and it's also when you think about as a leader, you know, one of the best things a leader can do is say, I need help because what that does is gives everyone else permission to say, I need help. Right. It gives you permission. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this a long time ago when he looked at mindset in organizations and, you know, he talks about a genius mindset and the, the organization that he used as an example was Enron and Enron was a very genius driven mindset and everybody had to be the smartest person in the room. And what happened? People were demonstrating unethical behaviors. They were keeping their ideas to themselves. They were more importantly, they were keeping their mistakes to themselves because I don't want to show anybody that I made a mistake. And so what does that do? That means that if I have 20 people on the team and one person makes a mistake and does not share that mistake with the other 20, that means that mistake could happen 19 more times before everybody discovers how not to do that thing. So, you know, when, when a leader says I need help, that is one of the most powerful ways to energize the group is give people the freedom to say, I don't know. Can you help me? I, and I tell my kids, I work with foster kids and these are kids who have, um, you know, through no fault of their own been dealt a really bad hand. Um, and so they're pretty bad at some things. Like they have not been modeled. These, these are kids who have been physically abused or sexually abused and neglected, whatever. And I teach them, there are five phrases that if you learn how to use them, that you will get what you need in life. And one, the first two are please and thank you. Um, just when you say please and thank you, you acknowledge another person is doing something for you. Um, the second is, I'm sorry. The third is, I can help because we can all help somewhere. Yeah. And the fourth is, I need help. I mean, the fifth is I need help. And that fifth one is really hard for most people to say, I need help. I mean, we, we prime ourselves to be the most confident, competent people. We put our best version of ourselves out for the world to see. We don't want to say we don't know or we need help. But when you do that, you make the entire team stronger. And I think that that we are starting to see very clearly the price that we pay as a community mm -hmm. because of the message we get that asking for help is a sign of weakness. If you don't stand up for something, you'll fall for anything. Um, never let them see a sweat. Um, don't make a mistake. Winning isn't the most important thing. Winning is the only thing. I mean, all that programming resides, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know that that programming is necessarily bad or good. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it is neither. But if it's unquestioned, it always moves towards toxicity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it goes back to if the brain is in survival mode, you're not doing your best thinking, period. So if you want your people to be doing their best thinking, well, get them out of survival mode. Make them feel safe. Make them, you know what I mean? 
there are, you know, I don't need to go through the stats. People leave like this whole great resignation. People are not leaving because of money. They're leaving because they're not respected, because uh, they don't feel like there's any room for them to grow. I mean, we are we are climbers and stretchers. We are. We lo- we like the brain actually loves a challenge. The key is to it's the Goldilocks rule. You know, if we're doing something that requires absolutely no effort, well, then that's boring. If we're doing something that is way out of our zone, no way you're ever going to reach that thing. Well, that's frustrating. So the Goldilocks rule says it needs to be just on the other side of where you can reach so that you push yourself to get there. And then when you do, you know, hashtag dopamine rush, you get all these like happy chemicals that like, you know, fill up your brain and that those happy chemicals actually do make the prefrontal cortex work better um, and facilitate neural connectivity and all that good stuff. But, you know, when you think about why is that person not engaged, like seven out of 10 times, I would venture to guess it's because they're bored. It's because they have no challenge. Challenge them. Like bring them into the conversation. Help us to figure out this problem. When you trust people and say, I've got this problem and I really need help. I'm telling you, people will move mountains to figure out that problem. They will. It's so simple. But but apparently it's not easy. <laughs> it's I mean, not common. It's not common. And okay. yeah, it, and okay. I think... It's not common probably because it isn't easy, but when you do it once or twice and you realize that doesn't make me look weak to your point, it takes a very strong person to know, to be secure enough. I mean, there's another bias there called the Dunning-Kruger effect, Um, you know, and then the Dunning-Kruger effect says the people who know the least think they know the most and the people who know they, the most think they have, they realize there's so much more that they don't know. Um, and, you know, I think it was Mark Twain that said, it ain't what you know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> right? Yeah. He also said, um, I never let my schooling interfere with my education, which is right. one of my, I have a bunch of stuff I want to, I want to send to you. Um, so this, this disconnection that we're in right now, this <clears throat> political, economic, ethical, social, uh, gender, race, I mean, it's, it's, it's all hitting the fan and maybe over time, that's a good thing. Maybe it's about time. All these things got approached. It's too bad. They all have to happen at once, but that's the way it is. So how do you see, you know, this is, this podcast is called back to different. And that came from, I got tired of hearing people say, I I can't wait till it goes back to the way it was. And I, I'm a smart ass. So my answer was all always, you got a long damn wait. Yeah. Right. Um, how do you see possibilities in this time? Because, you know, we've been, we've been talking about changing our minds, changing our feelings, changing our spirit, a whole bunch of things about this, this stuff we can do. How do you see possibilities for more of us going, well, in order for this to get better, I think I 
and we need to take a harder look, question our assumptions, and we need to leave some, we need to let some stuff go, which for, I think as part of the survival thing, it's real hard for us to let shit go. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I really like this cup. It's, it's worn out and it's chipped and it's broken, but I might need it someday. <laughs> so this could be the cup that saves my life. So I better save it though. I really don't like it that much when I think about it, but it could be the cup. Mm-hmm. So why is it hard to do that? And, do you see, I mean, I see hope. That's my wife too. That's a, a different story. Uh, but, <laughs> but I see little signs and little slivers of, of people being, being more aware of our need for connection, our need for community, our need to, to stop making noise and start listening more, to stop creating so much heat and then maybe start to create some light. I mean, I see some stuff happening. So from your much more um, rigorous academic perspective, what do you see about that? So, you know, I have very strong feelings about some of these topics that are swirling around for us right now. Um, And I think where I am hopeful is I'm, and this is a personal, this is a personal growth challenge for myself. So, um, you know, I think I have to do a better job of communicating why I feel the way I do without attacking someone else's identity. And I'm, I'm, it's a, it's a challenge. It's not easy. And, and some of that comes with, help me understand where you put my view in your schema Um, because, because we're all human. And I think that something in my view could fit in your schema, like try to find that common ground. Um, And, and I, and I am finding that when I am much more intentional about my conversations, because I can go out there with the best of them and just rant and rave and yell and scream and yeet, point my finger. And I can, when I'm passionate about something, I'm passionate about it. And so I think it does take intention to say, this is not the purpose of this conversation is not for me to communicate my passion. And the purpose of this conversation is for me to figure out if There's something in my perspective that that person can accept. Anything. And you know what? Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's just not. And you say, thank you for having this conversation. And maybe on that particular issue, you're just never going to come together. But it it makes me better at communicating my stance. So I'm not suggesting that people just give up their position or give up their belief systems. What I'm suggesting is we have to do better. We have to do a better job of having meaningful dialogue about them, especially when they're polar opposites. Because I don't think those hard conversations are going anywhere. I think that they're going to be with us for a very long time. And I think it is incumbent upon us to get better at them because we suck at it right now. 
I absolutely agree. Sorry, I, I was I was trying to find something to disagree on. Damn it, <laughs> but I failed. Um, I don't think it's a capacity issue. Mm-mm. I think I, I have I have I, I'm so astonished at the capacity of humanity. Just it's it, it's amazing, you know this thing. I mean, it's like, wow. <laughs> so, if if it's not a capacity issue, then the question I ask, I guess, of you, but of myself as well, you know, back to what I said before, what stands in its way? I mean, it is still uncomfortable to 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 question my assumptions. But I've learned that that discomfort is not pain. That's discomfort. Like we're we're like moving back into my house, and there's some discomfort in that. You know, it's, moving sucks, but moving is really cool, and you can't get from here to there without going through that that rubbing together. So, what about that that friction of belief, new idea? You see it, you see A, I see B. What about that um, discomfort for some reason reminds us of threat? Well, again, I mean, I think we have these, you know, our belief systems, our mental models, I mean, they're intricate, intricately woven into our, our identity. And, um, so I think for someone to say you're wrong for believing this thing, right, whatever it is, um, then it's an attack on us personally. I think for me, I just had a really hard conversation, um, and it was about the Texas school shooting. And and you know, my I, I don't know anyone on the planet that doesn't didn't just like that just took the breath, took my breath away. I just literally, I can't wrap my head around so many things about that situation, but, you know, I, I put myself in the shoes of those parents and, and what in the world they're going through and, and how that must feel. And I had a conversation with someone it, we are on complete opposite ends of many spectrums, like who we disagree. And I knew going into that, that um, I, we weren't going to agree on, you know, gun reform or whatever, whatever it was. But, but my intention was, can we just mourn together? Can we just mourn the loss of these kids together? Like, can we agree? What a horrible thing. And we did for a minute as well, actually five seconds. And then (laughs) she went into knowing exact, knowing that we're, you know, divided on this issue. She launched into all of the reasons why I'm wrong in my position. And my, what I had to tell myself in that moment was you need to just listen to this because in this conversation, nothing's going to happen. But if I have a greater understanding of that position, then in my next conversation, I may be able to use that and have a much more productive conversation next time. 
And, you know, it's almost like to wave the white flag on a conversation that you feel very strongly about is hard. But I, I wasn't going to change her mind. We, we, I was going to take that little five second win. I was going to take that. And I was going to listen to what she was saying. And then after I got off the phone, I was like, you know, I wish I would have said, but you know, now the next <laughs> time I have the conversation, I am better armed to have it and, and not in a, not in an emotional way and a much more of an intellectual way. And I think that, you know, the other thing that we just haven't done very well the last four or five years is our empathy, our empathy buttons are broken. Like we just have not done a very good job. We've become very tribal and it's us versus them. And, and we, you know, all those biases that play into that, um, it just completely skews our thinking. So I think if you we look at every person as that person that we don't know where they stand on that issue, and let's just be human being to human being, we have a chance, but that requires empathy. And I think that we need a primer on empathy. Yeah. You know, there was a song by Sting. I, I It's called... Um... I hope the Russians love their children too. Oh well, I'm not familiar with that. Now I gotta, I've gotta find it. Well, and you know, um, I know you through the friendship bench, and and one of the things I value so much about the friendship bench, but I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want people to get too self conscious about it, is though there are strong opinions and there are people who know everything. Um, <clears throat> There is also this um, um, current of community there, and community does not die from difference. Community dies from indifference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what you said about empathy, which is, you know, it's, it's simple and it's complex at the same time. And... Every time you or I or anybody models empathy, and it can be as small as you're walking down the street and somebody's child falls and, and, and hurts his knee and you, and you just stop. It does not have to be Jesus-like mm -hmm. for it to, I think, have a huge impact. And every time we show up with empathy on our face in our heart in our words i think we, we all get to you know we all get to shift it just you know you said for, for five seconds you said for a minute but really it was five seconds we get to make those little shifts and i think as they accumulate maybe that that some of the toxicity of this you must be wrong i mean i was i was in an aa meeting the other day and and it hadn't started and i was talking to a guy about this new facility which which encourages people in recovery to come and have coffee and eat and stuff but they're charging for it oh. and it's it's like that's for me that's i said i'm not going there because i don't like the idea of somebody making a profit off of other people's recovery and that's just the way i feel well this guy got 
all upset with me because what he heard is you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then he even said, you know, there are arrogant people in this community who think they know everything. And I was like, I was like, could I have, could I have put that differently? But I don't think that I'm willing to not say I see that differently. And that's as close to, I'm not right and you're not right, that I know how to get. And if we can't say, well, what you just said, Melissa, <clears throat> I think I get where you're coming from. And I see it a little differently. Because if we can't do that, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I had an online exchange. I wrote something that was very pointed and I did not make any bones about where I stood on an issue and I had someone challenge it, but challenge, she challenged it very respectfully. And we had a kind of a back and forth. And then, you know, finally I, I was kind of at this place where we're not going to, you know, we've exhausted this. Yeah. But conversation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I did. So when I, my, my final response to her was, thank you. Thank you for thank you for sharing your perspective and thank you for at least letting me share mine. And, and this this is how meaningful dialogue works. Right. Um, and if you think about to your point about, you know, communities don't thrive from difference. They um, they die. I don't die from difference. They die from indifference. You know, it is that it is that ability to share those new perspectives, those new ideas, that is what has enabled us to make advances in every aspect of society, every aspect of civilized life. It's because somebody said, have you thought about doing it this way? Have you thought about maybe a light bulb or a telephone or a printing press or every invention that you know has, has been in our past is because somebody said, have you thought about like, what if? And so I think we have to be really careful not to stop asking those questions. And But to your point, I think it's each of our, we all have that responsibility to say, and I am at the front of the line. So I say this with no judgment. We all have to do a better job of saying, have you thought about, um, I, I, have, I am trying really hard to eliminate two words from my vocabulary, a two word phrase. And that is you should, you know, Mac, you should, I'm trying not to say that anymore. From now on, I'm trying to be much more mindful and intentional about saying, have you considered? Because you should is a directive. Have you considered is a question, you know? And if you think about just the, um, just the body language that comes with you should, you know, somebody pointing their finger at you, or have you considered it's the hands open, it's the open arms, right? Um, and I and I think about that, and I catch myself, and when I say, you know, you should wait, have you considered, <laughs> or you might consider, um, and I think it's going to be simple shifts like that that are going to help us take really big steps forward. I mean, if enough of us do it. You know, and we recognize when somebody else does it. That's the other thing. I have I'm I'm trying to really pay attention when someone comes at me with a have you considered or I hadn't thought of it that way. And and I and I try to acknowledge that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's going to be those kinds of things that give us 
the grace to get through this. All right, final jeopardy. You have kids? No, I have I have three cats, fur babies. Well, but but you also work with children. Yes. Okay. Yes. So so somewhere down the line, these these children that you work with, which I really appreciate. I love working with kids. Kids are so much smarter than we are. They are. <laughs> they really are. Dogs. Our dogs and cats are smarter than we are in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, look at the system that they've developed for survival. Anyhow, so somewhere down the line, some of the kids that you've worked with are grown and they have children. And they have told their children the story of you. So their kids know how you figured into their parents' history. So they're your, your kids' kids, your your. I guess they're not grandkids because it's not biological, but you, you know what I mean. They they come home after their teachers talked about the pandemic and how hard it was and how sucky it was, and they weren't around. So they're curious. So they ask their parents, because they know your story, how did Melissa handle the pandemic? And what would you like them to tell their children? Uh, I was humbled by the pandemic. I, I, I think it, I didn't recognize it at first, but I think I would like them to, to know that I was humbled by it in that it really made me take a step back and recognize a, what's really important in life and B, um, how we're not whole when we're on an Island. When we're on an island, we just are not whole. And I think the pandemic put everybody on an island. Like it kind of put everybody in time out for a minute. Um, and, I, and I know that, you know, there was that when we, we, we figured it out, we, we figured out how to do Zoom. We did, you know, all the stuff. Um, and no matter where you stood on the mask issue or the vaccine issue, I think we were universally much nicer to one another when we came back together because, you know, it was hard to be isolated from everyone and your routine is disrupted. And we like routine. We do not like change at all. <laughs> I mean, if you think about how the brain works, it's like, if you think and, and picture a field, and, a, and you go through that field for the first time, it's this overgrown field and you go through that field for the first time and you make like a little bit of a path and then you come back and you do it again and then you do it again. Pretty soon that path is really worn. The, when you have neural connections that are like that path that we've done over and over and over again and they're really, really worn and we don't even have to think about it. Like we don't have to navigate, how do, how do you get to the other side? How do you cross the field? You don't have to think about it, you just follow the path. You know, that's how the brain works. But we're also missing a whole bunch of other stuff on either side of that path. You know, and simple things like take a different path to work, like drive a different way, um, go to a different grocery store, you know, try a different restaurant. It doesn't have to be life altering. It just, it's a mindset. And so I think the pandemic really humbled me to, wow, I am really a creature of habit. And I have really come to depend on those routines and those things that I do every day. Why? 
I do them because I've always done them. It's like the seven most uh, expensive words in business. This is the way we've always done it. Yeah. You know? So I think I would like to think that I became a little bit more introspective and a little bit more, um, well, certainly more grateful to the people in my life Um, and humble. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Mac. That was great fun. God forbid. (laughs) Glad we finally figured out how to get in the same Zoom room. Yeah. Hello. First world problem. Right. Um, When you get a chance, would you send me your mailing address? I have a couple things. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.